the American Battlefield Trust seeks to preserve our nation's hallowed battlegrounds and educate the public about what happened there and why it matters today. They permanently protect these battlefields for future generations as a lasting and tangible memorial to the brave soldiers who fought in the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Civil War. You can help save battlefield land today by visiting battlefields.org. Shepherd University's George Tyler Moore Center for the Study of the Civil War and Department of History invite undergraduate students from across the country to come and spend a semester at their historic crossroads town of Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Their semester-long Civil War experience will immerse a select group of undergraduate students in collaborative learning, interpretive field experiences, digital humanities projects, public history programs, and a war and society approach to military history. For more information on this program, please log on to shepherd.edu slash Civil War Semester or contact the George Tyler Moore Center directly at 304-876-5429. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. My name is John, I am the Tattooed Historian, and I'm so happy that you all have been enjoying the podcast. Uh, I see that the numbers are starting to increase, and I'm really appreciative of all of that. I saw that last week's numbers were fantastic, and it's probably because I got a little more personal in that podcast and talked about the being in business for a year and the things I've learned being an independent historian. Uh, but this week we're going back to the interviews like I love to do. I love to uh, showcase great historians and up-and-coming historians. And our guest this week is just that. Lindsay Foster is on this week. And Lindsay uh, is one of the best interpreters that uh, I have seen on video and doing a lot of things with other interpreters. She trains other interpreters. She loves to understand the interpretive model. And she wanted to come on the podcast this week and talk about a couple of things. And they're so very important to the historical narrative. And these things are race and gender in first and third person interpretation. So we go over what first and third interpretation is, and we go over the touchy subjects involved with race and gender. Lindsay works currently at Colonial Williamsburg, and she goes into detail about working there and the people that she works with and their ways of doing interpretation. Now, I haven't been there since I was a young kid, so the interpretive model has changed a little bit since I've been down there, and we go over that as well. Uh, when I first started going there when I was a kid or when I first went there as a kid, everything was in first person, and that's... Uh, something that I was uncomfortable with because that's when someone comes up to you and starts talking to you as if they're living in that current time, like the 1770s or the 1780s. Uh, sometimes that can be a little awkward. So now there are more third-person interpretations, which is what I usually do, which is just me talking to you like I'm talking to you right now about history. So sometimes that can be a little less awkward for the audience. And Lindsay and I go over that. We go over talking about race 
with all kinds of people, talking about gender norms for the 18th century with all kinds of people. These difficult topics really make it great to hear how people enjoy and how people learn from the history. So Lindsay was a great guest. I was really happy to have her on, and I'm really looking forward to hearing your feedback on this episode. And please uh, continue to like the podcast, uh, continue to rate it, continue to share it with your friends, subscribe. Uh, It really means a lot to me, and I'm really thankful that this is getting up and running. And I know my sponsors are really appreciative of everything you've done to make this podcast a success. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to my friend, Lindsay Foster. Hey, everyone. Thank you again for tuning in to the Tattooed Historian Show. Uh, I'm really pleased to have my friend uh, Lindsay on today. And uh, this is going to be a great discussion because Lindsay Foster works at Colonial Williamsburg and she uh, works with people all day. <laughs> and uh, she's been doing a lot of different kinds of interp. And I would, I'm l- lucky to have her on today. So, Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the program. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You are very welcome. I'm so happy that you are on here with us and to speak about something that uh, we haven't covered yet on the podcast, correct? I don't think so. Yeah. We're, we're going to talk about uh, race and gender in first and third person? Yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely something that we haven't uh, covered yet, but is so very important and vital to the historical narrative. So before we get started really deep into that, Lindsay, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Oh, absolutely. Um, I've been working in the field of public history, museum interpretation for about five years. Um, my background is in English and French. Uh, thought I wanted to work in publishing, tried it hated it. And so I found my way into museums and it's been um, pretty incredible ever since. Um, I started out at the Atlanta History Center down in Atlanta, Georgia, um, interpreting 1864 uh, most days, um, but also doing some stuff with um, Cherokee removal and the civil rights movement um, as well while we were down there. Um, And I've been at Colonial Williamsburg now for about three and a half years. Uh, I was working in public sites for about two and a half of that um, giving general sort of tours about um, what it was to be a British subject or what colonial government was like or, or the institution of slavery and how it developed over the 18th century. And then I recently transitioned full time into being an actor interpreter at Colonial Williamsburg, so doing first person um, now pretty much exclusively. Mm-hmm. I do have to say that while I do work for Colonial Williamsburg, I don't speak on behalf of the foundation and the, the views expressed here are my own. Right. Um, but with that, that caveat out of the way that I have to give. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. I understand. Yeah. So you've been involved uh, earlier with some subjects which some would, would consider, uh, you know, touchy subjects with Cherokee removal and, and stuff like that. So that, that challenge isn't new to you. Right. That that was kind of um, my my introduction into living history was kind of charging straight into interpreting slavery and interpreting 
Native American removal from from early Georgia. Um, and so for me, interpreting these kind of difficult topics is just kind of what this field, in my experience, is about. Um, and I don't I don't mean that in a in a snooty way, but just uh, telling telling these whole complicated stories is is a really exciting thing. Mm. Yeah, I, I could I can't imagine some of the things that is said, and I don't want to know. But uh, you know, <laughs> uh, but but the thing the thing that I really admire about what you're doing is, uh, you know, we often look into ourselves to find out our flaws to fix them. Sometimes we don't wish to do that in the overall narrative of, of history. So I think what, what you're trying to accomplish here is fantastic. Uh, what, what has been your experience with these difficult topics in general? Oh gosh. Wow. That's a <laughs> charging right into it. Oh um, yeah. Oh yeah. That's how I do no, it. I love, love it. Um, the way that I try to describe it to people is that it is not always easy, but it is always good. Um, even having interactions with the public that don't go the way that I want them to go. Uh, I try to bear in mind that the reason people are having frequently a strong response to the subject matter at hand is because it is touching them or provoking them on some level. It's challenging them um, and something about who they are, how they process the world on some level. With that said, I don't like to, I don't like to be shocking without purpose. I don't like to open a wound without purpose. Um, but overall, I find that people are really wanting these days to engage with these difficult topics, to try and understand more layers of the story than the one they've been told. Um, and, and seeing that curiosity and seeing those sort of beginnings of, of kind of an awareness of, of the wider world and these sort of overarching narratives is, is a really, really promising thing, at least, um, in my experience. So for, for those uh, listening who have never done interpretation or have never studied interpretation, when we say first and third person, what are we talking about? Well, third person, I would explain as like a really good textbook or a really good college class where somebody's able to stitch together objects and primary sources into a story that makes sense to you, the listener. That's third person. Um, first person is the person that you're speaking to is inhabiting a character. So rather than saying back in the day, they would do this, they're instead putting themselves into that moment and saying, I think this, or I'm going to do this. Um, so first person think like a first person narration or, or in character experience. So is with the entity that you work for with, with Colleen Williamsburg, is it mainly first person interaction or is it both? Um, there's there's a lot of, of different styles that you'll find around town. Um, if you were if you're just taking a general tour of the building, we try to use very active language um, so it doesn't feel like something that happened long ago to other people. We try to bring you in by using uh, present tense verbs and that sort of thing. Um, but for my department, frequently we're out in character portraying various people who lived in Williamsburg in the past. So we'd be using um, present tense language, but also I statements rather than they or in the past. Right. Okay. And, and when I, I was there, oh my, I was at Colonial Waynesburg as a, as a kid. And mm -hmm. I remember that mainly I had interactions with people in first person interp. Yeah. And, uh, I, I realized that some people really 
got that you know they really got into it <laughs> yeah. and then some people were like wait why are you talking to me like some this people are super not into it and right that's one of the, we've, we've tried different styles at this museum we've tried different styles throughout the decades and um for some people first person just really doesn't work either the interpreter themselves isn't comfortable with it or the guest just wants to ask where the bathroom is and mm -hmm. and if you keep kind of dancing around being like well where's the privy um <laughs> right. they just they just need to go to the bathroom so so we try to offer a bunch of different ways to engage with our guests so that hopefully regardless of your entry level in history and your desire to kind of play along regardless of that we're still able mm -hmm. to to serve your your needs and get your questions answered and make sure that you have uh, a good and, and thought-provoking time so, so yeah, we've, we've tried different ways in the past, but but we, we currently have a little bit of everything for everybody. That's awesome. That's great, because even myself as a historical interpreter, uh, I find it's very awkward for me to do first person a mm -hmm. lot, because it's just the way I present history, I need to talk in the third person. Absolutely. Um, and and Absolutely. many times I interact with interpreters who are doing it in third person, uh, it's just mm -hmm. more comfortable for me because we can talk about uh, parallels with other things, et cetera. Um, but some people do really uh, love portraying first person as much as I mm -hmm. love portraying third person. Um, mm -hmm. And some people engage, some of your visitors, I'm sure, engage the first person interpreters uh, a little bit differently than they would a third person interpreter. Oh, absolutely. And and now having been on both sides of that at Colonial Williamsburg, um, there are there are definitely people who are not comfortable with first and there's definitely people who would much rather you be in first um, if they could have their choice. So it's it's nice to be able to see that range. Um, but it's always fun when you when you find that right guest or you find that colleague who's willing to play with you, uh, mm -hmm. you can you can have some fun there in your day. <laughs> right. And that makes it all the better for everyone if you can find your little find the pattern absolutely. you like absolutely so so with the first and third person um ways of doing things when we're talking about race and gender and we're talking about some subjects that may be a little uh outside the norm for some people to hear or want to confront mm -hmm. uh do you do you see a difference in the first and third person way of doing it, like if you're talking about slavery in the first person, do people generally accept that differently than they do a third person or are they more comfortable with it? Or have you have you even noticed that or is that just some kind of a theory that's probably not even true? <laughs> you know? Oh, no, that's a that's a great question. Um, it, it really it ranges. Um, the the danger with with interpreting slavery and and you know gender power dynamics and, and other race relations the danger with doing that in first is that you don't necessarily have as much control over the context of the conversation or what the guest takeaway is going to be mm. um i do a, a program right now where i'm portraying my my primary character who actually happens to be a, a loyalist in town and she's a, a slave owner and, and all these other things and she's having this sort of moment of, of crisis um, trying to reckon with the humanity of her enslaved people and ultimately deciding to kind of walk away from that epiphany and, and not deal with it at all. Um, and, and seeing the reactions on, on guest faces in programs like these is, is an interesting thing as an interpreter because you have to walk a very fine line um, in your in-character portrayal that you still are making sure that your point is still coming across. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to sympathize too much with my character 
that they are willing to go along with everything she says without listening to the words that she is using. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Um, and and because I found that in in third person, I can. I mean, I'm not I'm not bound to a historical time period. I'm not bound to a lack of knowledge of what's going to happen after 1776. I can give you the whole story and I can connect it to the news cycle of last week. And I can connect it to, you know, civil. I can draw the, the line straight from the civil rights movement to where we're standing right now. But in first person, I have to I have to stay within that limited scope unless there's an out of character portion where I can kind of contextualize for myself. Um, so that's really kind of the. I don't know, the, the thing that I kind of watch for um, in those portrayals and in those programs um, of are they are they nodding along with everything I'm saying? Because if that's happening, then I need to change my tactics right. to make sure that, that the stories I'm trying to tell are actually coming across and that they're not getting bound up just in the fun character portrayal that they're they're experiencing. I would imagine that talking about these kind of topics in either the first or third person uh, that it's even more important that you understand your audience and, and read that audience uh, perhaps a little bit differently than you would other topics. That's that's um, Absolutely. something that yeah, I've found, and have you found that as well? Certainly. Um, one thing that I, I tried to do um, when I was giving third-person tours of the, the Peyton Randolph House in Williamsburg where we really dig into the story of, of slavery uh, in, in Virginia, um, try to give a general overview of the tour just to establish that sort of common ground with, with guests before we begin. And then pretty early on, try to, try to get people relaxed, um, try to crack a, a couple gentle jokes or something to get people at ease. Cause especially when you're, you're going to delve into a, a more, um, charged topic, you want to make sure that everybody knows or understands on some level that, that we're we're all going to be okay. We're going to talk about some heavy things. You might feel uncomfortable. That's okay. It's okay to feel uncomfortable. Um, we're going to get through this together, sort of thing. <laughs> right. um, which which might sound silly, but I find that if you want to have a real honest conversation with people, you you've got to get those shoulders relaxed. You know, you've got to get people to let their guard down a little bit because history is not always a positive story. It's not always a um, a pleasant thing. And for a lot of of American history, um, things that we, we tend to take for granted or write off as these great American virtues were not things that are extended to everybody. And that's important to understand. Yeah. Um, but you have to have people feeling comfortable with that discomfort in order to have the conversation in the first place. I know for myself personally, Lindsay, that uh, it was up until about three years ago, I was doing my genealogy and I found an 18th century ancestor in North Carolina who was the only person in my family who was a slave owner. And, oh, my, wow. and I, everyone else in my family is from like Massachusetts, Maryland, Pennsylvania. And then there's this one wild card <laughs> in North <laughs> Carolina and he had some slaves. And I remember that my, uh, internal like feeling really changed because it's yeah. like, wow, now this is touching me as well uh, oh, yeah. in a new way. Uh, when, when, you, when you talk to people about something like race uh, in, in 18th century uh, Williamsburg or 18th century Virginia, do you sometimes get people who have personal connections or they just come up and they, they say, you know, that, that 
maybe their their ancestors were slaves or their their ancestors mm-hmm. owned slaves and that's their personal connection to it sometimes um people don't always feel feel comfortable volunteering that sort of information mm-hmm. um, and i understand mm-hmm. um understand why because again it is it is still an open wound um i heard i heard somebody once say you know we shouldn't talk about these ugly sides of history because we would just be reopening a wound and my friends, if you think that that wound has healed, your head is deeply buried in sand. It's mm-hmm. it's still very raw for so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually have I have that connection myself, and so especially when I'm going into really heavy conversations um, with guests, I try to sort of lead by example in that, and I try to be very open and honest with with guests or with the public, and saying I'm not coming into this conversation from a, a position of finger wagging at you. Um, my, my ancestors on my mother's side arrived, uh, here to Virginia and to Pennsylvania in the early 18th century. And they owned slaves as soon as they were able. And they fought up until 1865 for the right to continue to own people. So when I'm having these conversations with folks, I'm not, I'm not wagging my finger in their face or trying to moralize. This is my history too. Um, I have the names of enslaved people that my family owned, and I try to to bring up those names and work them into my interpretations um, as often as I can. And it's not because I, as Lindsay, feel this this heavy burden of guilt um, or anything like that. It's it's not about guilt. Guilt isn't helpful. It doesn't it doesn't do anything for us um, in this in this context. Um, but I I try to make sure that I'm keeping myself honest and I'm not letting myself off the hook. Um, because I mean, historically there's, there's blood on my hands and I, I can't take that back. Um, but what I can do is make sure the whole story gets told every time I have a chance to tell it. And I found that by, by sharing that sort of information with guests, um, those who might have been feeling a little bit more defensive, I see them physically relax, um, because we're establishing again, this sort of shared context So this is something that's difficult for all of us. We're all sort of coping with it in different ways. Um, but we have a duty to understand the entire story um, of American history. That's that's such a wonderful point because I know, uh, again, for me personally, it feels almost like a responsibility for me Absolutely. to to tell that story because you know someone in my family owned someone, and it's almost my responsibility yeah. to say, "Hey, you know, this happened. Uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat it," and uh, mm-hmm. and I can see how that could be a little uh, uh, uncomfortable for for a lot of people, even visiting, uh, you know, Williamsburg or any other historical site. I can see how that could be a little, um, uh, you know, you can get a little sick to your stomach knowing that that is in your bloodline. Uh, but, oh, yeah. But we have to face it, it, you know, and, and teach from it. Absolutely. Um, the way I phrased it to a guest one time who was asking me, not in a confrontational manner, but they were like, why do you, everyone's talking about slavery here. Like everywhere I go around Colonial Williamsburg, everybody's talking about slavery. And, and I sort of laughed. I was like, well, slavery was everywhere historically, um, especially in this town. I mean, the population of Williamsburg in 1776 was just under 2000 people. About 52% of the population were enslaved over half. Every other person you saw walking the streets of Williamsburg, Virginia in the 18th century was a person of African descent. And so for us to really understand what it was like as Thomas Jefferson walked here, as, as their other founding fathers walked here, we also have to understand what it was like for Lydia and Ben and Nanny and Juba. We have to understand the whole thing. These are people whose paths crossed all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and the way I phrase it sometimes to to guests is that a tapestry is not woven of a single thread. It is many intersecting lines. And if you only follow that one thread, you're going to miss out on a beautiful, huge, complicated picture. Um, and and that's that's how I feel personally about you know whether we're we're interpreting race and gender, whether we're talking about LGBTQ history, whether we're talking about military history or those familiar stories of founding fathers, they all are part of this massive, beautiful picture. Um, and then, I mean, hell, we ourselves are, are part of this picture too. We're weaving our threads into it. Mm -hmm. But again, you've got to know the whole story or else you're just going to miss out. That is so true. I, I can't put it any better than that. That is, that's a <laughs> wonderful way of putting it that, uh, you know, I've I've often said that we're all part of the same fabric and we're all a bunch of threads in the same fabric. If we could just get that mm -hmm. through our heads sometimes that we're all in this together and our history is all in it together. Absolutely. Um, with with uh gender and gender mm -hmm. and gender roles in the eighteenth century especially, uh what what has your experience been with interpreting gender roles at this time? Well this one this one can be interesting. Um, I portray, I portray two women who are, um, in a relative power of, of privilege. Uh, one is a, a gentry, lower gentry lady who owns her own property, owns enslaved people in her own name, even though she's married, um, Frances Hubbard. And then the other woman I portray is a, a royal governess in the governor's palace. So they're both women who are in positions of relative power, but they're still women in an 18th century society. So that, that aquarium's got some some heavy glass walls mm. um it's it's interesting because while politeness and manners factor so deeply into society that same sort of sense evolves into something else when we're interacting with the public there's parts of of deportment and manners that just don't translate um I don't know. It's it's complicated. We're we're dealing with a, a lot of things, not just at Colonial Williamsburg, but in the wider field um, of issues of of harassment. Um, and so that's that's kind of an underlying part of this conversation. Anytime gender gets brought up, is that that sexual power dynamic? Um, it's it's one that <laughs> is, is still kind of unresolved. Right. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, I can't imagine what they would have you know, what the parallels would have been if they would have had, you know, the communication abilities we have today, you know, right. you know, is it, it, it's like, is it, is it really getting worse or are we just unmasking it even more now? I, I think know? we're just unmasking it. I think we're just calling it what it is. Right. Um, I think it's always been a thing. Uh, there's a, there's some, there's some great rejection smackdowns that happen in the 18th century. <laughs> there's a, a woman who gets proposed to at one point and he sends her a glove and, and says, you know, I've, I've given you this glove, take away the G and you have love. Will you marry me? And she sends him back a letter. His last name is Paige. Mr. Page, your last name is Paige. Take away the P. You're, you've got AIDS. You're too old for me. Wow. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Delightful. Um, wow. There's, there's, I mean, so there's, there's ways though that, that women are, are exercising power within their sphere, as they'll often say in the 18th century, within their compass. Um, that, that line from my big fat Greek wedding, the man is the head of the household, but the woman is the neck. Mm. And we see evidence of that um, happening in town. It's not necessarily something that's documented outright, um, but women exerting their influences um, in law, in, in social circles, and things like that. 
that can be uh, sometimes a harder thing to, to communicate um, to guests because it's it's much more nuanced unless you have an instance of a woman um, suing for some court kind of right in the in the county courthouse or or taking out apprenticeship contracts uh, or, or that sort of thing. Um, that power dynamic is a little bit more complicated. Do you see, um, do we can you, find. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say we we can find evidence um, of it through um, diaries a lot of times where it's not necessarily something that is visible externally, but when you get a window into somebody's life uh, through their own writings, you start to pick up a little bit more on those undercurrents of of what that female influence might be uh, on on the men in her life or vice versa. Do you see the uh, with with gender roles and and you uh, interpreting someone who is uh, own, owns a slave or owns slaves? Mm -hmm. Do you see differences in the interpretive model or in uh, the presentation itself when we go by class as far as mm -hmm. gender roles are concerned or or? something like that do you see that you know because if you're if you're uh 52 percent of the population is slaves at that time Williamsburg, as you said mm -hmm. um but there are women who aren't probably slave owners then their their role might be a little bit different than than a slave owning woman or uh you know or, or their class it, it, might be a little different um there's a really i wish i wish they were here with me i have two colleagues um Jamar Jones and Margie Sutherland, who um, portray uh, some free and some enslaved people mm -hmm. in town. Um, and they have in, in one of their, their programs, um, as part of their talk back, a comparison between the rights of a free white man and a free black man in Williamsburg and a free black man and a free black woman or a free white woman and a free black woman. Mm. Um, and and so they, they do this sort of physical demonstration where they they're holding placards describing what they um, are portraying in that moment. And then they will move about the room based kind of like a game of mother. May I, right. Um, where the statement will be read out, you know, I can own property and whoever can will take a step forward. Uh, I can own a firearm. Whoever can will take a step forward. And so to be able to compare in, in that way, um, the rights between these different demographics and classes, not even talking about socioeconomic status, but just mm -hmm. free status or enslaved status between these differing differing people groups is is just insane um, because it, it kind of makes me think of um, something that Lyndon B. Johnson said uh, concerning race um, of just if you can compare the the lowest white man or if you can convince the lowest white man that he's high as, higher than the um, comparative black man he'll he'll let you pick his pocket or something something to that effect mm -hmm. um, that's very much an 18th century principle. You might be you might be free in the 18th century as a person of color, um, but that freedom really really rests on a razor's edge, and it's something that is very easily um, easily taken as time goes by. So that that um, the the dynamic of, of gender as it enters the equation is is also something that is oh, it's just it's just shocking. Um, I I did not know the breadth uh, the the full breadth of these laws and how they govern different people's stations um, until I started working. Uh, and started having to to explain it to others. Mm -hmm. But that did that really that experience or those experiences did that was that really the moment where your eyes really opened to uh, how other interpreters bring 
this out and bring this across in different ways. And it really just opened your eyes to, wow, this is a really important uh, thing to consider. Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, and and I, I'm learning every single day from, from my colleagues. I am very, very fortunate and I get to work with incredibly brilliant and passionate people who are who are trying to have these really difficult conversations on a daily basis and have brought their own different skill sets into trying to put guests at ease and trying to um, provoke critical thinking and all these different things. Um, so there isn't there isn't one moment that my eyes have been open. I'm, I'm walking around all the time just just reeling with the different ways that these stories are being presented in such dynamic and and powerful ways. Mm-hmm. I, I'll tell you, as as someone who has done interpretation off and on for a quarter of a century, which is kind of odd to mm-hmm. say, uh, I, <laughs> well, in, I so, amazing. yeah, I so really want to, and I have said this, I so really want to just come back down knowing the Please interpretive do. models I know now. And just, I just want to see it, you know, in, in yeah. action, because it's like, I know everyone has a fingerprint when it comes mm-hmm. to their interpretive model. And there are so many fingerprints where you work and other organizations that uh, uh, you have helped out with volunteering and organizations I've volunteered with, everyone could learn from everyone on the interpretive model in some way. And I'm sure you you see it every, you know, you see it more often than I ever do uh, through <laughs> that. But it's like, I just really want to come down and just study the interpretation end of it from someone who does interpretation. I think that would be just fascinating as a public historian oh. thing. Well, and I will say that every single one of us, we love to talk shop when you have the opportunity to. We love right. to talk about about process and try to support other people who are who are also kind of in this uh, field, whether it be as a hobby or whether it be as a as a profession. Because mm-hmm. um, again, the more the more voices we can have, um, as as you said so beautifully, the more fingerprints we can have on this. Um, the more the story gets out, the whole story. And I, I don't mean it from a, from a biased perspective, not my version of the story, um, but, but just so much more of a, a rich and complicated understanding of who we were then, who we are now, and, and who we will be, maybe, if we get there. Right. I, yeah, that's, that's so true. And what, uh, what is one thing that you've really, really uh, enjoyed or has really moved you? you know, from, from doing these interpretive experiences at Williamsburg, which would be, uh, for, for many people who don't know, you know, Williamsburg is for those of us who are into interp and such has always been the place where it's like, wow, we wish we had a Williamsburg for American civil war or, or whatever, yeah. you know, it's like, it the place you go. <laughs> yeah. So, so what's, uh, what's something that's been like, you know, really, it really hits you you know, where you were like, wow, that's just amazing, you know, and thought provoking. Mm. You got anything that uh, was really like that one moment where that spark was like, wow, that's just really deep and emotional, or that really is something I never thought about. Absolutely. Um, I will, I will tell you the serious one, but I have to tell you the hilarious one first. Okay. Um, (laughs) I was standing out, out front of the, the Raleigh Tavern one day, um, just chatting with folks, making making pleasant small talk, and there was a political march that was happening in town. Um, and the streets of Williamsburg at present are public streets. They are city of Williamsburg streets, and so as long as people have a permit and they're not on 
our museum property, they're allowed to do these sort of marches and, and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and this particular march was causing a little bit of a stir among some of our guests. Mm-hmm. And as these these teenagers are walking by with their signs and and their chants, this woman comes up to me uh, and and is in a huff. And I uh, asked her how her day was going. She said, well, it's fine. But I came here to learn about American history, not about protesting. <laughs> Without being able to stop myself, I just looked at her and said, oh, honey. <laughs> Bless your heart. Bless your heart. Um, <laughs> so there's, I mean, there's, there are definitely moments that are, that are kind of like that. We, we laugh at because, because people don't, people don't know the whole story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was, there was a time, and this was, this was back when I was in Atlanta. Um, and I had, I had been in conversations with some of my colleagues for a while, because at the time, um, most of my, my colleagues did not feel comfortable whatsoever portraying an enslaver. That was something that really made them uncomfortable. They didn't want to treat our, our fellow interpreters as slaves. That was something they were really not okay with. Um, and in conversations with my colleagues who portrayed enslaved people and in conversations with our playwright, Adaya Moon, we kind of came to the conclusion that by pulling our punches, because we were uncomfortable, we were cheapening the story. Um, for, for the guest experience, because they were coming and walking, possibly walking away with the idea that maybe slavery wasn't so bad um, or or that nobody really wanted it or or what what was this whole war thing about? And so for for about a year, I was working closely with these folks to try and create a portrayal that was a little bit more honest and had a little bit more teeth to it. Um, and so finally, I, I did. I developed a composite character of a, a slave trader's wife. Um, to be able to speak a little bit more specifically um, to, I don't, I don't want to use the word villain because um, I, I don't believe in, in heroes and villains, um, but, but a more provocative character portrayal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, I remember the, the whole, the whole way I went about this was to make this character very, um, very personable, very affable, very welcoming, uh, I would sit with you and I would I would gossip with you and I would I would start to gain your trust and then very slowly and very subtly start to to turn things. Um with the way that this tour was set up was that the students would go around our 1860s farm and they would meet all of these different perspectives at all of these different stations. And I knew that if they had come to my station they had already visited um the slave cabin and they had already met Marcus or Minnie or one of the other enslaved people there. Um and I knew that they had a book stashed and that one of their stations was to talk about literacy as a form of resistance in 1864 among enslaved people. And so in my my conversation with these these students, uh, we're we're making small talk and getting them to laugh and getting their advice on on this, that or the other. Um, and then just very subtly started asking what all they'd seen on the farm and anything unusual strike you. Um, and all this, of course, was, was planned well in advance with my colleagues. But then, like clockwork, one of the students who was wanting to um, obey the authority and, and be sweet to the, the nice lady tells me, oh, oh, there's a there's a book out in the cabin. Re- Minnie was reading to us. And in this moment, because I know who I'm portraying, I know the time period, I know the, the rules of the sandbox for this character, um, I, I changed my approach very, very quickly. Um, and then very sitting, all the students, you know, grab their friends. No, no, you weren't supposed to tell her you. Oh, so you all know. 
Um, and then it really changed this dynamic in this moment because the kids suddenly realized that they too were sort of stakeholders mm-hmm. um, in this. And and it was it was a kind of a chilling moment to be on on that side of that realization for the kids because when we study history we always think that we would have been the hero i have learned through my own genealogy that if i lived back then i would not have been the hero Hmm. the family into which i would have been born at that time uh was a family that would have normalized enslaving other people and so creating that that sort of chilling moment for those students and and then them realizing there are about to be consequences then in character going on explaining what's going to happen now according to the 1848 slave code, according to these other pieces uh, that were falling into place. Um, we had a, we always had a talk back on a debrief where we would, we'd break character, ring a bell and help the kids kind of process the different experiences they had at these stations. Um, and, and that those conversations we had with students were always so powerful because kids understand better than anybody else in the whole wide world, the difference between right and wrong, justice and injustice. Um, they haven't learned these shades of gray and these sort of shrugging explanations we make for for abominable behavior as we get older. Um, and and we would have kids, we would have kids who would come up to folks portraying enslaved people and offer them uh, use of their dad's truck. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you want to escape to freedom, my dad will be here at six. Like traffic's bad, but we'll get you. Um, and then having to explain to them, you know, these, this is in character. I'm not actually an enslaved person. I'm not actually an enslaver. This is not actually 1864. <laughs> right. We know what it is. Um, those were, those were really powerful. I remember in character once, um, arguing with a little girl. Um, the premise was I had just found, uh, papers that, that suggested that one of the enslaved women that my character owned, uh, could read and write. Um, and trying to ask the students for advice on what to do about that. This little girl, she read me the riot act on what I needed to do and how I needed to get my life in order. Uh, and there was a lot of things I needed to check about my choices. <laughs> and in character, you know, you push back to a certain extent, but it, I had this sort of realization halfway through this conversation that it was way more important in this moment to validate this little girl. Um, that what she, even though an 1864 woman would not have agreed with this tiny feminist, <laughs> that this little girl needed needed to be validated, and so I I agreed that yeah maybe I should take the kids and go to my sisters and and <laughs> maybe maybe think we gotta reevaluate things. But but that's that's I think regardless of what that that provocative moment is, whether it's the lady totally misunderstanding the American Revolution or it's a a, a, a terrifying all the air sucked out of the room moment or it's a little girl who is uh preaching me a sermon on on women's lib you know whatever it is it's that it's that moment of connection um mm-hmm. that really makes makes this thing what it is because mm-hmm. that's really ultimately what we're doing it's not about being the best actor in the world um it's not about having the exact right words or or understanding every tiny nuance um, of, of life in that time period. All those things are helpful. All those things are tools. But ultimately what it is, is trying to get the past and the present to talk to one another. And as an interpreter, I get to facilitate that conversation. I get to translate that conversation. And that is an absolute honor. That's, that's awesome. I, you know, that's, you just dropped the mic on that one. Uh, <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't top that with Lindsay. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's, that's just incredible. I love what I do. I don't know if you can tell. I absolutely love what I do. Yeah, I can tell. And it's like I always say, you know, you gotta be, you gotta be passionate about something bigger than yourself. 
and Absolutely. and that's and and you definitely are and uh you know in, interpretation can be tough and it can be very rewarding and when you're doing it all the time you know that's that's just an incredible thing and to everyone out there listening who may uh being going out to their local historical society or going to Colonial Williamsburg or going somewhere else uh, where these interpreters are putting in their time, you know, it's very important that uh, you interact with them and to try to understand uh, what their purpose is for being there and what story they want to engage with with you. Uh, because a lot of work goes into this and uh, a lot of uh, sweat and tears and sometimes a little blood. Uh, but you know, you, you stick your finger with a needle one time, you know, trying to sew and that's, that's where you usually get it from. But, uh, interpreters like Lindsay and, uh, and others, uh, not in Colonial Williamsburg, but so many other places are there for you. And, uh, I, I can't stress that enough, you know, that they're not there. Go ahead. No, just, we cannot do what we do, um, without, without folks who want to come and, and ask questions and participate. It's very much a, a two-way street. It is. It is. Yeah, don't don't shy away and don't be scared. Um, you know, it's The it's... way that I try to put it to guests is um, ask brave questions and you'll get brave answers. Um, if, mm. you're, if you are brave enough to ask the question, I will go with you on any topic. And if I don't know, I will, I will tell you. My colleagues and I were really good about, about using that phrase. I don't know, but let me point you to a source or let me help you towards a, a person who can help you. We're, again, we're all about helping to build these connections and follow your curiosity wherever you want to go. Yeah, that's it. We're, we're all in this because of curiosity. So we're, mm-hmm. we're happy to see other curious people show up and, uh, and, and try to uh, get involved with us in one way or another and go away with something uh, a little nugget of history in their head they didn't come in with. So, mm-hmm. uh, Lindsay, thank you so much for for joining us on this on this podcast. It's been tremendous, and I can't thank you enough for the interpretive work that you and your peers do. It means a lot to me as someone who has uh, just done it as a hobby for for many years. Uh, and I know it means a lot to a lot of the visitors who show up. So, thank you for that. Absolutely, my pleasure. Please, please come see us anytime. Oh, I can't wait. I would love to. I might bring some recording equipment with me, but I'll be there. <laughs> do it. Do it. Uh, yeah. I can put some awesome folks. That'd be great. That'd be great. So thank you again, everyone, for, for tuning in. Uh, please like the podcast, share, subscribe, rate, do all that good stuff. Share it with your friends. I appreciate you all tuning in. Thanks a lot. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>